I should probably note that uh, this morning, before I was about to come over for the 8.30 service, I got a conspicuous two texts from my colleagues up here um, asking if I was on my way over, and that maybe should have warned me that when I walked in and looked through the window of the office, there were two creepy bird heads (laughs) staring at me. One fear living next to the church is that that could have come through my bedroom window. It did not. Um, But I would just argue that this is the non-scary option for Halloween, because that was terrifying. Um, So why don't we start with a time of prayer, if we can. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time, for this place, for these people, and for this purpose. May you speak to us through worship this day. Amen. I want to start... not quite, before I get into the preaching text for this morning, I want to start by just naming something, and that is that for those of us that have had to preach from time to time in our vocations as clergy, um, we're often told that our job is to proclaim the gospel, the, the piece of good news that is the gospel of our faith, but sometimes that is a really hard thing to do, um, especially on a day like today after another shooting. And I know we took some time in our our prayer space to name that, um, and I'm glad we were able to do so, but I just, I found myself praying a prayer yesterday for all of my colleagues who preach, not just today, but throughout the year, and that is that however we as Christians think about the story of Christian faith, or however we as preachers have to kind of articulate that or paint it, that we don't dilute the badness of the bad news in order to lift up something that feels good to us. There is something as central to the story of Christianity that comes out of that violence and that hurt and that disappointment as much as the victory and the safety and the care. So I want to I name that today. I want us to exist in both of those realities, whether it's in the preaching space or just in our conversations as people of faith going forward. And my hope is that before I read this preaching text that we can just take another couple moments that we can just dedicate um, those folks who lost everything yesterday, um, and especially for those who share their Jewish faith with the Jesus that we all follow. Um, So if we can just take a couple moments before we get started. The healing of blind Bartimaeus. As Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet. But he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And the crowd called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus responded, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately Bartimaeus regained his sight, and followed Jesus on the way. 
the Word of God for the people of God. So I should be honest to start that this is one of my favorite passages in all of the Scriptures. This is one of those stories, I'm sure many of us have them, that just kind of resonates in a deep place. Maybe because we heard it more often than other ones, um, or because there's some particular piece of it that just catches us every time. And I've had the opportunity to preach it in multiple different contexts, and each time a different arc or detail in the story catches my attention. And it can be weird when this happens, especially if you were raised anything like me, because I was taught that each story in the Bible had a meaning, a meaning that God intended or a meaning that at least was fairly clear at first glance. So really, the name of the game was to read the story, get that fairly clear God-given meaning, put it into practice in our life, and move on to the next one. Logic checked out. It was pretty simple. I got pretty good at that, but of course... For those of us that have been in Scripture for a while, it doesn't always, if ever, work out that way. In reality, one passage has a number of interpretations, and I think one way that these diverse interpretations can show themselves is by focusing on different characters in the scene. There's never only one person or one thing or one place at play in the narrative that we're reading. Take our story for today. It's likely that when we first encounter this passage, we will assume that the central point can be found in the words between Jesus and Bartimaeus, right? It makes sense that when given the option of who to focus on, we should probably choose the miraculous Messiah figure who, despite having a direct connection to God, decides to relinquish his privilege and respond to the needs of a poor beggar. Or maybe we focus ourselves on Bartimaeus, A blind, poor man who is valued and healed by nothing short of the God who is known in the person of Jesus. Fact is, I think that when we read this story and when we read a lot of stories in the Scripture, we kind of automatically go to this place of assuming we know where the action is at. I know that for me, there's this question I have that are there times where maybe our vision is off a bit. Is it possible that even though we think we know where our attention needs to be because the right answer is always Jesus, the song Keep, Fix Your Eyes Upon Jesus comes to mind for me, right? As long as we just focus on Jesus, we're bound to learn something spiritual out of the story. I can't help but wonder if from time to time we miss important things because we read the gospel stories by looking in the wrong directions or by excluding characters who could offer us a deeper insight into our own experiences as followers of Christ. Today I want to talk about a different group of characters in this story. They're not the saviors, they are not the victims. In fact, they are simply referred to as a large crowd following Jesus out of Jericho. As the passage says, Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city when they passed a blind man, Bartimaeus, sitting on the side of the road. I am of the opinion that for many of us in this room, the most relatable character is not the God-man who can miraculously heal the afflictions of the hurting, nor is it the experiences of the blind beggar who has no one to support him, who's often ignored, who has to feel around in the tunic that he laid out on the ground to see if any change has been dropped by somebody passing by. No, I think for a lot of us, 
the person or the people we can most relate to is that crowd. The group of fairly pious individuals who follow after Jesus because it seems like the life-giving and meaningful thing to do. The group who has the power to facilitate Bartimaeus' relationship with Jesus or to deny it from happening. The group whose character and integrity are most tested in this story. And this might make some of us anxious because being associated with the crowd generally is not a good thing. I'm sure some of us were raised with parents who said something along the lines of, if everyone is doing blank, do you really think that means it's a good idea? Has anyone else heard this, right? Common refrain. I lived near a creek in a lake kind of area in Oregon, and I remember all of these young guys my age would go down to this cliff and they would jump into the water. And every time my parents would go, do you think because all your friends are doing that, it's really a smart move? Right, so there's a clear answer there. Like, do I want to be accepted by my friends and jump off a rock into a dangerous lake or follow my parents? Um, even the phrase, when we talk about other people and we say they're just following the crowd, it's kind of has a level of judgment in, in it, right? There's a sense of you're not being independent. You kind of are just going with group think. It's not the kinds of qualities we want to be associated with. And I know for me as a young and admittedly very, very anxious child, I took a lot of those parental warnings of following the crowd deeply, deeply seriously. To the point that I probably avoided the logic of the crowd a little too much. Um, I remember I was on a trip where I was a part of a student group in junior high and for a quote-unquote bonding exercise, they sent us to the woods. So not a great start already. Uh, we go to the woods, we get out of this bus, and all of a sudden we are told that part of how we're going to bond with one another is we're going to climb a tree 100 feet in the air and we're going to do this huge swing. And then after that, we're going to get on a zip line and we're going to go flying through this canyon on a zip line. And then you're going to get on a ropes course that looks like it's as high as heaven where you are only tied together by the slimmest of what I would call twine. <laughs> now listen, I have had people to this day tell me that that was a rope, but it was not a rope. I, they are liars. Um, and the moment I arrived at this ropes course, I made a very quick decision. I've always been a very quick decision maker. I said, listen... I am not doing this. This was a great idea. The student group I was with was called the peer mentors, which meant we were just all the nice kids that were nice to all the people that felt left out. So I got in the group for good reasons, but this was where I was kind of drawing my line. Not doing it, okay? I'll bring you waters, snacks, whatever. And immediately when I made that choice, I remember all of my friends starting to rip into me. They started to be like, come on, you have to do it. It can't be that dangerous. If people died doing this, they wouldn't let folks continue riding these things. I remember wanting to say, you know, if you're trying to convince, like, the pansy kid to do something like this, mentioning death, however optimistically, is not a great tact. You know, even if it's we're never going to die, just like don't say die, right? Just say this is going to be fine or something along those lines. But, but the worst of it was, was actually my teachers and the leaders of this student group that came up to me and they said, listen, fighting through our fears, maybe some of you have had this talk before if you're also, fighting through our fears is part of what it means to come together as a team. And if you don't participate, then our team bonding really isn't going to be complete. Whew. I remember thinking in my head, 
And I was, I was a child that was very submissive, so I didn't say this out loud, but I wanted to say, no, you know, the bonding isn't going to be complete because one of you morons told us that we had to climb this hundred-foot tree in order to, like, learn how to work together. I didn't say that. I'm a good person, but I, I remember thinking that, and I am actually very grateful that for our bonding exercise, Kate did not make us do anything high up in the air because I probably would have quit my job. Um, But on that day, I was deeply, deeply suspicious of going with the crowd. And I made a very intentional decision not to do so. And I think it says something about the way that people like you and like I and like many of us in this room value the ability to be independent. The ability to think for ourselves, the ability to choose to not be lumped in with this crowd. But the problem with that desire to avoid kind of groupiness is that When I read our text for today, I realized that one of the things about life is that often the crowd is not something we choose to participate in or not. It's something we find ourselves in, almost unintentionally. In the context of this story, I'm sure the crowd was made up of a number of people that found themselves there for a variety of different reasons. But whatever reason that is, their desire to be for proximity to Jesus, caused them to overlook and reject hurtfully the shouts and cries of Bartimaeus on the side of the road. When Bartimaeus first starts to call out to Jesus, those in the crowd sternly ordered him to be quiet. As one commentator says, these pointed rebukes were a callous thing to say to him. But as we know, crowds with their swift intolerance Their undisciplined emotions can do heartless and cruel things. That that interruption annoyed them. In our current moment, we might know what these voices sound like as they shut down those who cry out for help on the side of our own roads. You're being too loud. You're being too militant. Why can't you be a little bit more civilized? We're just about to have a nice dinner or go for a nice walk in the sun. Why do you have to disrupt us with your cries? The gut reaction is to focus on the way the suffering of someone else is taking away from the crowd's experience of privilege and access. The second reason the crowd may have initially tried to silence Bartimaeus is because they might have believed his blindness was deserved. That whatever suffering he experienced, it stemmed from the sins of either himself or his parents or his grandparents or a distant relative. If you read the book of Deuteronomy and the Hebrew Bible, there are points where it talks about blindness as a curse. For those of us who have read the book of Job, we might be reminded how the second Job loses his family and his health and his safety and everything is falling apart. His friends, the first question they ask of him, what did you do? You must have done something to deserve this. Because this would only happen because you're cursed. Because of the sins of you or your forefathers or your family. To be honest, to me, it sounds eerily similar to the logic often used against those on welfare or those barely able to survive and who seek greater support from a society like ours, from people like us. You must have done something wrong to be in this situation. 
Maybe you should have stayed married. Maybe you should work another job. Was it responsible to have children, really? What's keeping you from moving into a better neighborhood? You have options. But Jesus rejects those narratives. He doesn't blame Bartimaeus for his suffering. Instead, he hears his cries. He validates his truth. The truth that this man deserves access to healing power as much as anyone. And further, Jesus applauds him for his faith, for not giving up, for ignoring the peer pressure of a crowd who wanted him silent. I know that some of us find stories about miracles performed by Jesus to be inspiring, while others of us find it frustrating or distracting. Because when we get a story like this and it ends with Jesus healing a blind man, often we may find ourselves wondering, What's the takeaway here? Is the point just that we're supposed to wait for a miracle in order to solve life's problems? In order for suffering to go away, do we just need magic Jesus to show up and fix everything? As a pastor, my advice would be, wouldn't do that. Wouldn't wait for a miracle. Not because I don't believe in them, but because when I've done that, I've ended up waiting a long time. But whether you're comfortable with the miraculous or whether you need convincing, what Jesus does represent in this story, I think, is a source of power that is not just tied to his influence or his political popularity, but he represents a source of power that represented healing. Spiritual healing, physical healing, healing for people who have been told by crowd after crowd to be quiet, healing for people whose access to the kind of life they desire has been blocked by others who don't need it as much as they do. But Bartimaeus, to his credit, was not settled with this logic. He took his desires for support into his own hands, and I can't help but wonder if Jesus applauded his faith not because it was a gentle request. I know that sometimes when I read stories about people talking to Jesus in the Gospels, I assume they're just very meek and saying, hey, Jesus, real quick, it would just be great if I could get a little bit of help here right? I know I don't want to bother you, but it would be wonderful if you could heal me, if you could help my brokenness. But I read this passage, and I can't help but wonder if Bartimaeus was a little more forceful. Maybe he was claiming something he thought was rightfully owed to him, and he knew where he could find help. Instead of Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, maybe he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I know you can do something. Don't ignore me. Maybe the faithfulness of Bartimaeus is seen in his persistence and his unwillingness to let those with power and resources and healing off the hook. But what about that crap? How are those of us who find ourselves in the crowd, who have access not just to Jesus, but to the things in our world that offer us status and health and well-being, how do we practice faithfulness? When our mainline Protestantism makes us feel safer in our sanctuaries than religious minorities who fear for their lives during Sabbath? 
when being a straight pastor like me in the UMC means I can blend in with the crowd and come out of the upcoming general conference unscathed, unlike my queer clergy siblings. When I can blend in with the pack because of my citizenship or because of my whiteness, how can I choose faithfulness? How can we choose faithfulness? I think in some ways the passage is clear. We aren't faithful by becoming Jesus. The crowd is not the Savior the world has been waiting for. The crowd doesn't have the antidote, and they don't know what help looks like better than those who have struggled for years like Bartimaeus. Instead, as Jesus instructs in this story, the crowd is faithful when it says, not be quiet, but when it says, Jesus is calling you. This is your way to healing. And we'll get out of the way. We'll make your path straight. You deserve mercy. You are faithful. I think it's pretty fair to say, and probably most of us are feeling this, we are living in some pretty tumultuous times. And many of us, I know myself, have to wake up every single day and decide whether we'll stay with the crowd who keeps us safe as long as we don't advocate for the folks like Bartimaeus, or whether we'll pursue the path of faithfulness that doesn't involve being Jesus, but that does involve repenting of the ways in which we have been in the way and blocking those who Jesus calls first. Repenting of the way in which we keep those who sit on the side of our own roads from encountering the gospel. May we go forth ready to take steps of courage. And may we not necessarily leave the crowd, but may we turn the crowd faithful. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time, for this place, for these people, and for this purpose. We find ourselves in a lot of communities, and we find ourselves with a lot of decisions to make. And though we may feel like we miss the boat often, We pray that you offer us clear steps toward faithfulness. We pray that you demystify some of the ways that we're told it's hard to figure out what's the best way to handle this situation. That we find natural opportunities to hear those on the roadside that say, Jesus, have mercy on me. And that we don't wait to think about it but we jump to action, that we risk our safety, we risk our reputation, we risk what feels good in order to widen the community of faith. Guide us this day, and guide us as we enter this new season of ministry. In your name we pray, amen.